On this special episode of Hidden Noise, we are presenting you with recordings from Digital De Suite, a symposium on blockchain and the arts held during Freeze New York in May 2018. Even Magazine partnered with Ace Hotel, Data Editions, Monograph, and Tech NYC. And together we invited artists, entrepreneurs, and established players in the art market and tech communities to participate in panel discussions and solo presentations. In the second half of this episode, we have two segments. The first is a presentation by artist Brad Trammell on distributed networks. He's employed a variety of strategies that incorporate blockchain technologies and theories with art making and selling. Then Bloomberg editor James Tarmy leads a discussion about the art market with Amy Whitaker, a professor at New York University, artists Zhao Zudo and Erica Love, Jess Hulgrave from Codex, and Noah Wunsch from Sotheby's. It's a lot of personality in these segments. We hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Brad Trammell. Um, so I, I don't really have anything to say about blockchain, but you guys knew that going into this. You invited me anyway. Um, but I think one of the things that we probably all are interested in is conceiving of a new way to configure the art economy. We all know it's broken. We all know it's subject to the same inequities and, and wealth and class and privilege and everything else that society at large is. Um, and so I think that kind of what we're searching around for and talking about things like blockchain and crypto and whatever else is how can we, how can we alter the art market in its image. So uh, luckily I've been trying to figure this out for about a decade now um, out of a roach-like sense of self-preservation and uh, an interest in institutional critique um, put into practice uh, in, a, in a practical manner um, instead of just in a kind of international art English academia paper way that we're all so used to. Um, so uh, I suppose with that, I can just let you know, I'm gonna talk about three projects that I've worked on. Maybe you've heard of them, maybe not. Um, and the first one is, an Etsy store that I started in 2012. These are, these are actually flyers um, from that. Here's, a, here's an instance of the store itself. It was just called a, BT, or a BSTJ Etsy store, and proceeds from this store went to pay uh, participants in another project I was running called Jogging at the time. And so people were paid for their work uh, on a post-by-post -post basis, but also on a note-by-note -note basis. So people who were part of jogging, which was a blog, it was collaborative, it was 5,000 people all contributing memes and images of art uh, in a conversational basis, um, uh, all kind of interacting with each other. And this was a store that I was running that I was kind of advertising through this participatory jog called, or blog called Jogging. Um, and the products uh, kind of were pretty typically food, oops, I wanted to show you the store, but it got deleted, so I'm just showing screen grabs mostly from jogging itself. Um, most of the products in the store were food items, so uh, the way it would work is it would start as a food item, it would get photographed and then posted to jogging where it would become a viral image of some kind, and then people would identify it and then go back to the store and buy the viral image. So it was a way of kind of trying to conceive of um, a meme or a viral image as something that was ultimately purchasable. Now, this was a little bit fraught because the things themselves were prone to falling apart in the mail, right? So you really were only buying an image, ultimately. The image was a kind of uh, uh, more permanent in that way than the object was as it arrived to you uh, once shipped. 
Um, so you can kind of think of it like a, like the element in the periodic chart that, you know, the ones at the very bottom where they only exist for like 0.35 seconds or something. Um, so here's another instance. Uh, and that's it. That's uh, it before and after. Um, so the, the store kind of became a success because of the popularity of jogging, which was the blog I was advertising it through. Um, so uh, websites like Gawker, Daily Dot, Time Magazine, Yahoo News uh, all picked it up. And one of the big questions surrounding it was whether or not the Etsy store itself was art, which the, that kind of, you know, that had its own a debate ensue. Um, the titling itself was kind of reminiscent of maybe like somewhere between like a, a an overly enthusiastic eBay listing and poetry. Um, so this kind of added to the confusion that was surrounding it. I, the, I mean, the, I, I should mention that this is not the art world, the art media that was covering this store. This was kind of more of a mainstream press. So I have no, I've never been mentioned in like Art Forum or Freeze or October, whatever, before, but I do have a feature in Bon Appetit magazine, so I'm, I'm proud of that. Um, so the majority of the collectors, I, the majority of the buyers through this Etsy store, then because of its viral success uh, or, or virality or whatever you want to call it, like we're not art world people in turn, right? So these were, um, according to the conversations that I had with them, stay-at-home moms and office workers in middle America and frat bros. Um, so the reasons uh, why people came to come came to purchase these things varied widely, um, just as the audience for it uh, was kind of very large. Uh, I think a lot of this probably had something to do, in, including the confusion about what this was, had something to do with the pricing. Um, most of these items were uh, very cheap, so most of them were below $50. Um, and that, I think, added to the suspicion that this might not be art, this might be something else. Or if it is art, it's at least approachable for me to become a part of it. So eventually I started vacuum sealing some of these items just as a way of preserving them long enough uh, for the shipping process to you know, be undergone. Um, I also like the way that these kind of served as time capsules then, and so I started including uh, contemporary examples of media, uh, especially art media or other fashion media as a way of uh, straightening and, and compacting the, the various elements that were a part of them. Um, this eventually led to another interest I had at the time of vacuum sealing books uh, of, you know, kind of like radical uh, academic theory alongside um, physical bitcoins. And so this was a series called the TSA No Fly List uh, series, and um, I, it it created an interesting question for me, I suppose, after the value of Bitcoin rose. This is in 2013, um, but it, shortly after I re released this work, and it was the first work that I ever sold, um, it was kind of a bittersweet moment because that's the exact moment that the value of Bitcoin rose so drastically for the first time from $200 to $1,500. And I thought that was bad back then. And uh, I was kicking myself, but... Uh, it, it did create this interesting question of whether or not, you know, uh, I, I suppose the collector would continue serving as a selfless steward uh, or a patron, or if they would allow the kind of self-interest and greed to destroy the work, to compromise it, and to extract the value of the Bitcoins that were held inside of it. So you had a very kind of direct uh, relationship between the, you know, work's continued existence and the collector's ownership of it. Um, this then kind of served as like my first foray into a short-lived and failed career as a commercial artist um, where I started scaling up a lot of the things that I was making 
through the Etsy store and including other elements, especially ones prone to decay and collapse, um, but also prone to the kind of uh, ups and downs of you know, the cryptocurrencies that I was using at the time, which were Litecoin and Bitcoin. Um, so as I kept showing this stuff, sometimes it would sell and sometimes it wouldn't. And sometimes in this case, it would explode in the studio after you forget about it and the fish create a toxic gas that has to clear everybody out. So, uh, it, but it costs a lot of money to do this stuff. And these maybe aren't the best examples, but a lot of, um, a lot of kind of what I was trying to do during my, as mentioned, short-lived and failed career as a commercial artist was to uh, do different shows every time. I wanted to give people a reason to come to see the next show that I did. I didn't want it to just be a continuation of the same kind of processes that I'd worked with before. Um, and this is fun and it's exciting and it keeps you engaged with your own art practice, but it's also really expensive because um, you have to work with different people. You have to learn different fabrication processes. Um, but, and then you also have to store a whole bunch of failed stuff that you did in the process of learning how to make new things. And uh, as I said, this, is, this adds a kind of a, another burden to the artist, especially in, in the fact that every time you now have to have some type of production budget because you're doing something new. This in combination with the failure of my commercial art career, in combination with the downturn in the market in 2015, led Josh Citarella and I to create UV Production House, which is the second project I wanted to mention. So uh, UV Production House was started also as an Etsy store that um, it featured all composite images, all hypotheticals. So there's no product in the store that we physically touched before or, or manufactured. Uh, these were all, um, digital composites of pre-existing products from Amazon, eBay, Alibaba, things that you can order uh, in just a click. And collectors then of these hypotheticals would be equipped with DIY tutorials. So they were then sent the materials straight through Amazon Prime. They would be sent the, the tools necessary to make the thing. Um, and then they'd uh, be sent uh, any, any other kind of like, you know, things like uh, if they needed a saw or if they needed a, a nails or whatever it might be. So as I said, no studio, no fabrication, no tools, no shipping, no storage, just ideas, images sold, and then the collector is left to assemble them. Um, so here is one that was physically, oh wait, no. So this is one that was really assembled and this is the composite. Assembled, composite, okay. So photographically, we were able to do this because uh, images are endlessly available and searchable online. And you can usually find them in high resolution. And also because product photography's conventions strive to maintain a kind of uniformity in the lighting, in the backdrop, in the composition. Um, so this makes images that are shot years or miles apart appear to be captured in the same studio. Um, it's the standardization that they strive for. So uh, this allowed us to then easily kind of stitch these things together and then offer them as hypotheticals for a, a buying audience. Um, what we were interested in at first was, uh, I suppose, combining ethical consumerism and survivalism as a, as a, as a subject matter, um, merging the kind of individualistic aspects of thinking that your uh, solo consumption habits are able to um, ethically influence the world in the same way that a survivalist has such little faith in society or governments uh, to save them from the incoming collapse that uh, they kind of set off on an equally individual path. Uh, I'm gonna have to go through these fairly quickly because I'm running out of time. 
Um, so we made hundreds of these products and we sold a few of them, but eventually we stopped imagining a kind of hypothetical dystopia where ethical consumers, where I suppose like garden variety liberal ethical consumers and like far right uh, survivalists ruled the landscape and started addressing the kind of more pressing issues of uh, the, the creative class dystopia that we currently exist in, which is a place of underemployment, death, uh, income amongst other forms of inequality um, as it relates to this kind of art market moment. Okay, Patreon, that's where we are now. That's where I am now. So 2017, I started at Patreon because I, I kept making the memes. I, like I said, I was most interested in um, the kind of like uh, uh, the storytelling aspects of the products that we were making together, Josh and I, through UV. And so at first I just figured if I could make enough memes, maybe people would feel like the sympathy for me in their heart to uh, sign up. But Patreon is a, a monthly subscription service where uh, it's usually most popular among podcasts and, and things like that, um, that people would pay me $5 a month to continue posting on Instagram and, and you know, making them laugh. But uh, I found that it worked best in <laughs> it worked best in, uh, in combination with offering my own work. So as another method of getting rid of all of the unsold work from my failed art career in my basement, I figured I could lottery off on a monthly basis uh, works through Patreon. So the way it works for me is if you sign up for my Patreon, that's a $5 a ticket. You can buy $5 for one ticket, $20 for four tickets, $50 for 10 tickets. And this basically just puts your your serial number is in a lottery at the end of every month. And uh, at the end of the month, I have a random number generator. And I then equip you with one of the, you know, I suppose one of the actual artworks that I showed in the beginning uh, part of this uh, slideshow. So these have all been my kinds of uh, attempts at trying to figure out how to um, strategize a career in art aside from the kind of art market as it stands. It seems that if there's any takeaway, maybe one of the things I've tried to do is involve more people uh, to lower the price and to use humor instead of um, the kind of faux scientific international art English that is the dominant mode of creating value in the art world. So thank you for your time. That's it. I'm James Tarmy. I write about art in the art market for Bloomberg News. Um, and everyone's names and titles are here, so we're just going to blaze past that. Um, this is actually a nice transition from Brad's uh, presentation because what blockchain and cryptocurrency have the potential and kind of premise or promise um, in the art market um, is the idea of uh, making it more accessible uh, for a much larger group of people and um, potentially making a much larger group of people feel like art and the art market are more accessible. And so um, this is a nice bridge from that. Um, Currently, there is a ton of money and a ton of companies coming into um, the art market um, via both cryptocurrency and blockchain. Um, uh, and we're going to get into why. Um, you know, art and the art world, I think everyone in this uh, room knows, is at least from the outside really ripe for uh, innovation. People who are not necessarily familiar with it see it as a deeply inefficient market. And um, people who don't 
really know how small it is think that there's a lot of money to be made. So um, I think that we should start with you, Jess, and kind of talk about what it is um, in the art market that uh, the blockchain can help um, and what it can do. Um, I think um, for me there's, there's so much that it can do and I think probably most of the really exciting things we don't even know about yet. I think the technology itself is so nascent which is why a lot of the experimentation that's going on right now is so interesting. And so how does, so your company Codex um, is, can you explain to the audience just very, very briefly um, what, what that does and how you guys are kind of applying it to the art world or an art market? Yeah, so our focus really is on providing um, a mechanism which can store provenance, but in a very private and uh, secure way. And so we're really focused on working with different partners to see what we can build to help them. And so is this filling a need, do you think? Or do you think that this is trying to get, provide something new or novel that people don't really know that they want yet? I think a lot of the, our approach really is to work with people and find out where the pain points are for them and to try and see how this technology can help them. Um, so for example, um, an, an asset-backed lender recently approached us. They really wanted to operate in a market where, unlike in the US, where you have a uniform commercial code, um, this market doesn't have a means of recording liens against items. So the idea of blockchain being a, a ledger against which you can conduct a search for liens that are, uh, are placed against items. So I think there is um, there are a lot of kind of perceived needs, um, mm -hmm. if, if you will. Um, and, and our approach really is to try to, to find out what they are and see if we can design things that help people. So Joao and Erica, you guys, uh, in your most recent work, which I'd love for you guys to briefly also describe, seem to also trying to be apply, apply blockchain in a way that um, is not necessarily uh, understood as necessary, but could be useful. Would you say that that's an accurate uh, description or totally unfair? Well, I, think, I think that's accurate. I think um, our interest is really um, grounded in um, derivative value and not like explicitly blockchain, but we see blockchain as an avenue to um, explore um, options for artists. Okay, so unpack what you mean by derivative value because <laughs> this is, yeah. Right. Well, if we, am I on? Yeah. So if we, so if we, well, I think there are a lot of ways to kind of unpack this, but primarily if you look at the collecting class, um, and you look at the general economy versus the derivatives economy, what we're kind of getting at in a sense, and this is just like a kind of thought experiment that's manifested through an art project, is, is whether, um, whether or not um, if we kind of flip the dynamic and if um, artists would be subject to gaining forms of derivative value after the initial sale, and not only through... Um, the, the topic of today's conversation, which is uh, artist resale royalties, um, but if they're kind of imaginative ways that you, that an, an artist or artists could work through um, some of the frameworks available now, the decentralized um, frameworks now available through blockchain to accomplish that. 
not to be dense or anything, but why should we give artists resale royalties? You know, um, I and Amy, we're coming to you here right now, but um, fundamentally, when we talk about resale royalties, we're, we're talking about something that has nothing to do with the artwork itself um, and nothing to do with the artist. And simultaneously, there is a tremendous amount of survivorship bias wherein when we make justifications for royalties, we're ignoring the 99.99% of artists whose work will never get sold again. I, I actually just, just read a paper about that, I'm prepared. So, um, yes, but I don't, I don't think, like maybe Eric can chime in, Amy probably has a whole lot to say about this, um, but it's, at least from my opinion, it's not, I don't think resale royalties as they've manifested have been success they've been un unsuccessful for a variety of reasons but um i think the the price asymmetries are, are the are the main ones and i think that what reseller rights should be maybe they're intellectual rights but they should be probably redistributed into a sort of fund i mean this happens probably in germany and 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 i think that that could be a, a, a useful system but maybe i can let and Amy I, talk oh i just one point about how they're not um, tied to the artist, but they are so much so because an artist's career after the point of sale um, really determines the subsequent um, sale price of the work. So, isn't that so getting it backwards, in. though? I mean, okay, I'm going to jump in. Please, James gave us a lecture beforehand about being succinct and, and interjecting. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say lecture. I, I would say I, you you share an opinion <laughs> with a law professor named Guy Rubb, who wrote a piece about in the law. Yale Law Journal forum about how resale royalties are forms of welfare or subsidy that are granted to artists, and that's why don't they go to other other creators? And um, then the classic story, which you just alluded to, Erica, is uh, Robert Rauschenberg sold a painting in 1958 for $900, and the painting sold again at auction by the Skulls in 1973 for $85,000. And I agree with your rationale that he didn't own any of the upside, but his continued career like he didn't stop being an artist, helped contribute to that. So there's a really basic economic logic, which is that idealistically and theoretically, economics is a system by which price equals value. And in the stage of early creative work, it does not. It, it is impossible to know what something will be worth later. And it's totally true that many artists will not benefit, but it's also true that there's upside that artists should have autonomy to assert optionality to. And the research I started doing on resale royalties in 2014 in a recent paper I wrote with Roman Kreisel, uh, the finance professor who's in the audience, um, I think that you actually can look at those as securities and you can model financialization in the arts based on the artist's point of view. So Noah, you're at Sotheby's. Um, how would you perceive of the value of an artwork conferring, the price tag of an artwork rather, conferring value upon that artwork and vice versa? That's a great question. I'm not sure I'm, I'm entirely qualified to answer it. I apologize. I'm, I'm not a specialist, by the way, just to, to set pretense. Um, I, I think it's an interesting question, C continuing to go back to the, the idea of royalties. Um, and I think it's particularly applicable uh, to something we saw a few years ago, which was that we saw these young contemporary artists who suddenly were blowing up. Um, and it, it wasn't unprecedented by any means, um, but it was, it was moving their market in a way that could shift their trajectory. They were so young and they were commanding such high prices um, before anyone could really say if their work would really mean anything in the long term. 
Um, and in some cases, uh, those prices were absolutely correct and those people have had wonderful careers. Um, in other cases, uh, the market decided that perhaps they may not be as relevant uh, and it killed their market completely. And at that point, you do wonder whether uh, a young artist particularly should be getting some royalties on those if they do need to subsist on this. Um, the market has since, in my opinion at least, uh, corrected itself in that way. But that's, that's a really interesting lens to, to look at it from. And in, in this conversation in this day, which has been amazing, uh, the one thing I keep coming back to is that I really do see blockchain today being really applicable to the primary market more than anything else. Um, interesting. Yeah. Um, would you say that that's true, Jess? I think it very much depends on what it is that you're talking about. Um, the use cases of blockchain within the art ecosystem, you know, there are they are too numerous to go through. And I think if you're talking about authentication, yeah, blockchain is probably primary market rather than secondary market. Um, but I, I don't think that blockchain as a whole can be said that it's only or mainly applicable to the primary market. Um, I think there are numerous uses, resale royalties being one of them. Uh, I come from Europe where the concept of resale royalties for visual artists is entrenched in the way that the art market works. Um, and unfortunately, it's a lack of the technology there that means that it, it is rarely enforced. And when it is enforced, it's only enforced for artists who sell through um, public auction. Um, and, and really then only at well-known institutions where people are monitoring that. And um, using blockchain technology as a way of enforcing that um, is actually something that really can benefit artists, not only who sell for high prices at public places, but whose work changes hands and they don't know about it and they actually can't enforce what they actually legally Just have a right to. In that case, though, wouldn't that start with the primary, i.e. the smart uh, contract would essentially start when that artist has sold their work, usually because you start the provenance at that point. And, and to set, because you're totally right that blockchain as a whole is applicable to the art market in many ways, including payment. What I was talking mainly about in the biggest way is, is authentication 100% and the difficulty that comes with provenance via authentication. Sure, but you at Sotheby's in London still pay resale royalty rights on secondary market yes, we do. things. Yeah. Um, and so, so I don't think that something has to be put on the blockchain at, at its source in order for blockchain to be helpful oh, to no, artists. No, I, I apologize if I... What I meant was, though, that I think today blockchain in a, in a primary sense is most relevant to a primary market. I see the most value and in how it can grow because I do think the starting point, particularly with provenance too, how we mark that on the smart ledger from person to person to person uh, is most applicable primary, starting source. But it's definitely relevant in some just ways to, to secondary. Just to uh, jump in, I think that um, I agree that it's easier to, to know for sure or to vet the authenticity and provenance if you start in the primary market. But I think what you're really saying is that it's a vetting problem and are there other ways to solve the vetting problem? And I think what the approach of Codex and the approach of another company called Artery is to kind of focus on the vetting um, because that is really high stakes if the blockchain is an immutable record and you put something in it and you're not positive. But those points of large public auction, such as at your company, um, are places where you're more likely to have an infrastructure that can do good vetting. Um, but I, I think the resale royalties issue is interesting in Europe. I actually probably agree with James uh, 
only in the European case, uh -oh. uh, because the the royalties, to my understanding, are are essentially structured as a surcharge. There's a cascade effect problem where the maximum royalty is 12,500 euros, and there's no mechanism for a refund if it's been charged to someone before, and there's no concept of a cost basis. So it's structured as a tax and not as a share in an investment. So. So I think some of the work that um, I've been doing, and I've uh, written a couple of papers, but one recently with Roman, um, is about what would happen if artists retained equity in the primary market using the blockchain. And, and so I relate to what you're saying about the complexity of secondary market. And I, I, it interests me democratically because of the power it gives artists and the, the recognition of artist autonomy um, but I think it has applications in the secondary market, and people are looking at it from the art fund financialization side as well. So all of this kind of begs the question, and I'm interested in uh, Erica and Joao because you guys are addressing this in a different way. Um, you know, some artists right now have a lot of autonomy. Um, some primary market artists, um, some some artists. Uh, I mean, we can get into who th these people are, but various people at various stages of their careers. Um, either because they represent the zeitgeist or because institutional collecting um, feels like they don't have that aspect of these people's work in their collections, are doing extremely well and are really dictating kind of what happens to their art and where it goes. At, how do you guys feel really that, um, I mean, do you, do you think that basically all artists should have that level of autonomy and who's paying for it? <laughs> Well, I think um, what is the figure, I haven't checked in recently, but I think it's three years and three months is the average when an artist is selling well, is typical. So even when an artist does reach Three years heights, and three months. Yes. But I, I haven't checked that in like four years. That's the figure for what, sorry? For the amount of time an artist does sell well. So that was like one of the figures that APT, the Artist Pension Trust, had cited, and that's why there was a pool of artists, right? So then it, it would... Um, when an artist at any one point was doing well, it would help the other artists. But, um, so it's not, you know, it's, it's really not many artists that do support themselves, and if they do, it's not for very long. Um, I do think it's not that, like, far of a stretch to ask for resale rights, considering if we think of, like, music royalties or we look to our European counterparts. Um, this has been... You know, lots of artists have been trying to do this since the 70s. It was a lot more active. Um, it's the opportunity of blockchain creates, a, well, uh, blockchain rather creates an opportunity that um, where this can be revisited, I think. So who's going to pay for it and, and the infrastructure? Um, right. I don't know. <clears throat> um, but I think, um, so there's, a, I mean, like, first of all, like, Artists, artists and artistic autonomy, who claims to be an artist, who's subject to that identity. Um, I think like Brad's presentation is amazing because he kind of problematizes that distinction, you know? I mean, the, the internet was awful for like, awful, the worst thing and the best thing ever for creative labor, um, mostly bad. Um, but, um, but, I think, but I think when you then um, think about the the actual existing art market, the one that's rarefied and hierarchical, the one that kind of we're talking about, um, that is primarily um, a physical commodities market. And so you're talking about decentralized computing, which is immaterial. Then how does one link the smart contract with the art object? Well, you need an infrastructure for tracking. You need um, 
you basically you need basically um, and that's essentially like you know a kind of wireless network and it that checks in with the art object that has a, a sensor and and that's standardized and all the big players have to get on board with this and and then you know well, wait, so no right I know there. who's gonna pay for it I don't know <laughs> but I mean uh, the idea of all the big players whoever that might be getting on board with that I mean Noah from your perspective <laughs> is there any way that Sotheby's would ever do something like this uh, actually, absolutely. Um, okay. Blockchain, again, we see the use in it. Um, I'm, I'm a subscriber, by the way, of, of Hugo Liu's mentality, uh, who spoke earlier saying that it's um, the equivalent right now of uh, the web in the early 90s. That blockchain is at an early time and it's moving really quick and it's very exciting, uh, but we haven't seen the full implications yet. Um, I think that actually what Jaws was, Zhao, Zhuao, yes? Perfect. Perfect. Um, was saying is something that is uh, missing in our opinion. And this goes back to what I was saying about provenance, which is when we sell a work of art, we have this beautiful Modigliani coming up for sale. If we sell it. $150 million. Yes, thank you, James. Um, <laughs> if we sell that uh, to Jess next week, um, there's no saying on our end, if, if they authenticated on the blockchain, the provenance is up there on Codex Protocol, uh, everyone who's owned it in the past, which is wonderful. But if Jess decides in a week that she's going to get the top forger in the world to forge that piece, and then she's going to sell it thereafter and transfer uh, on the smart ledger um, the ownership, there's no way of tying the piece directly back to it. Um, and that's, that's something that we're really interested in, what, what that connection can be. We're talking about spray DNA. We're talking about 5D scanning. We're talking about gigapixels. Um, that's something that's really, really important to us. Authentication is really what we're interested in. Provenance is our business, um, and we take it very seriously. Uh, but making sure that that provenance continues, uh, it needs to be tied to the piece directly. And so, Amy, can you talk a little bit about how you think this idea of provenance plays into the idea of resale rights? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I think uh, really, to me, the way they play in is that they're on a short list of the core use cases. So authentication, provenance, digital scarcity, which is what Monograph is helping, digi digital additioning, um, fractional ownership or securitization, and then some sort of smart contract copyright uh, law things that it, um, Sarah was alluding to earlier, and I think that um, you know provenance is related to resale royalties because you have to know the chain in order to figure out who has to pay it. But I think maybe the lens I would take on that question is that it's related to what uh, blockchain uh, protocol is chosen and whether it's a property rights protocol or um, a smart contract protocol. So there's a code as law approach and there's also a, the title does not transfer until the right is paid to mm -hmm. someone. And I, I think the question that comes up for me when you're talking, and I just put this back to the group, is, is um, kind of what the relationship of the physical object to the security nature of the artwork is because we have so many artworks like a Felix Gonzalez Torres or a Solowit where they, and uh, I used to work for Jenny Holzer where things travel with certificates of authenticity and um, it, it reminds me of currency and the gold standard and the dollar coming off the gold standard so like is it an art market where it doesn't matter if it's a forgery it matters that you have the real certificate um, which is sort of nihilistic from an aesthetic standpoint um, <laughs> Or do you have to have technology to match something to the object? And I mean, they're really interesting questions and governance questions all, all, all in there. And, and maybe we can answer that by actually um, turning it into something 
about tangible implementation of what that would look like, because this has been relatively theoretical with the exception of your guys' um, proposition to, um, uh, let, how would this actually work? And maybe Noah, do you wanna, do you wanna start this off? Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, we're looking at a number of avenues. So DNA spray is one we take very seriously. Um, so what, what is? DNA spray, is a, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like, which sounds totally gross, I'm aware. Um, <laughs> but we, we acquired a company, I believe two years ago, called uh, Orion, which was Jamie Martin's, uh, uh, he's like the CSI of the art world. I mean, like any major forgery, he's essentially behind it and uncovering the truth. I'm, the truth I'm is out there. Just to vouch for you, because yeah. you work with him, and I have an independent opinion. He's the guy who found Polar Tech fleece in a fake 1950s uh, work and he's also the, the linchpin in the Nodler case. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, um, he, he so he, I mean, he analyzes every single piece of an artwork to make sure that it's the real thing. Um, in DNA spray, the DNA of an artwork is literally uh, something he looks at. So if you have DNA spray uh, and you essentially store it away and you've sprayed the back of a painting, years later that will maintain and you can test the quote unquote DNA on the back of it and see if that is the authentic piece and it matches up. But again, here we have an issue, which is what if you use the same can and sprayed the forgery too? Um, there isn't a great answer yet, and we're still looking for it. Um, we'd like to find it, and we're very, very open to working with anyone who thinks they might know. Um, so please call me. Uh, but I don't have the answer yet. Okay, Jess, do you have kind of uh, real life applications that? I mean, I think, um we at Codex, um, and I just want to correct something you said earlier that we don't actually disclose ownership. Of, we don't require Sorry, people to disclose ownership. So you can't see who's owned it previously. Um, you can see where it's been, but not who's owned it. Anyway, I think in terms of the link between the physical and the digital, it's something that is um, is really important. Um, we recognise that, but we don't determine it as being our role to say which is. The, the best mechanism to do that. Um, I think depending on the artwork, some things work and some things don't. Um, uh, you know, an ephemeral artwork, you might not want to spray with <laughs> uh, some DNA. Um, and, and so I think it's really about, um, you know, we're working with several companies who are at the forefront of that, be it using synthetic DNA. Um, one of the most interesting things I actually think, particularly when it comes to um, works which you would be reluctant to add something to is just to look at the work itself. Um, it's extremely hard to um, to forge something, particularly if it's non-two-dimensional, even just a painting on a canvas, um, when you scan the underdrawings and you, uh, you know, and you put that kind of analysis, that sort of technical analysis as documentation uh, on the blockchain. And I think it's important also to remember that um, while blockchain as, as an authenticating technology is really useful, um, it's not necessarily just authenticity. People, authenticity um, is, is about attestation. Um, artists sometimes can say that they don't authenticate even works that are well known to have been produced by them. And so we view authenticity as a sort of spectrum of attestations. They might be strong attestations if they come from an artist, but they might be very less strong attestations if they come from uh, somebody who's a, you know, a generalist on a particular painting era. And, and I think that's what's really important too, is that people should recognize that blockchain technology is a great way to store and share information to show who produced that information and when it was produced. 
Um, but that's not to say necessarily that it should be relied upon. And anybody who thinks that um, you know, buyers don't need to do their own due diligence just because something's written into a blockchain is um, you know, likely to get into trouble, I think. Indeed. And, and turning to the idea of, of resale, and then we're going to open this up to questions if people have them, but um, and, and the idea of um, artist participation in their own market on a secondary level. Um, Sotheby's and the global auction market deals in around 400 artists in aggregate, right? Um, what does it mean for everyone else, right? You guys are artists. Um, you guys sell artworks sometimes. Sometimes. Ha sometimes. <laughs> Has your art ever been resold? Um, not to not that we're not to our knowledge, but again, like you know, it went to some shady people in Texas, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what happened to it. You know, one stat I always like to come back to, particularly with cryptocurrency. Uh, and blockchain for that matter, is Bitcoin is kind of the most popular cryptocurrency. Um, and I hope you will excuse me for taking a narrow scope with just Bitcoin, considering how many cryptos there are. There are 16.5 million uh, Bitcoins in existence. Uh, and we know that 40% of those coins are owned by 1,000 private individuals. Um, so that knocks out already 6.6 .6 million of 16.5 million Bitcoins, which narrows it down to, if every single person has one Bitcoin, about 9.8 million people have Bitcoin in the world. Um, the media, with its coverage, makes it seem like this is ubiquitous, that, that a billion people are trading in Bitcoin right now. But uh, I'd be curious in the room even, how many people have set up an account with something like a Coinbase or, or a Binance? Cool. Well, this is a blockchain talk, okay? You're, you're the outlier. You're the outlier, okay? By the way, it was like 30% of the room. Um, it, takes, it takes time. You have to download the Google Authenticator app. You have to carry your SegWit key, which is like 25 characters long at all times. Um, it's a process. I think that a, a big part of us getting it, by the way, on our website in five years, and I, I do think that this will happen in the next five years, is making the process a lot easier for people. Does anyone have anything to add, or should we uh, add? Uh... I actually think um, there are a lot of collectors. I think the point about sort of disclosing things in a public manner is really important. Um, I think the blockchain is an amazing tool at making information verifiable and yet not having to disclose it. Um, I had, we have uh, a big collection that's onboarding to Codex at the moment, and the beauty of it is that they don't have to disclose it, that all the information is held on their own server but yet they benefit from having third parties be able to attest to timestamp documentation to an insurer that we're working with, timestamping their insurance certificates. So I think um, it's really important to not confuse um, verifiability with um, you know, public disclosure, and also really important to not confuse um, you know, some of these kind of smaller benefits that people might get without this idea, this sort of absurd promise that one day everything will be publicly transparent and everyone will be able to see everything. Well, yeah, and transparency is, no one wants that, especially not in, a, in an entire world where perception is the creation of value almost entirely. Yeah, it just reminds me of how sometimes people buy any sort of asset under a legal structure that anonymizes them because like if, if you had a public key under which you had an art collection and you bought one more work, 
someone, even if it were not um, by your name, it was anonymous, someone would know that you were known for owning this work because you'd lent it to a museum. And, and so this work therefore definitely belongs to you. So I think there's some questions like that. And, and again, the title piece is, is easier if you think about it from artists originating the, the reference. But I, I do think there are companies like, like Codex and who are already in this sort of vetting business who have like a kind of particular uh, ability to deal in the authentication provenance space. Um, but I, like for me, I kind of hope it's a little bit more of a, an art project and that actually some of the biggest questions have to do with governance. Can I actually ask a question? And uh, this might be to anyone in the room. It's just something I've been wrestling with lately. As quantum computing becomes more advanced, I just wonder if blockchain is actually going to be immutable at that point. As we get more and more advanced with computing mechanisms, right now it's uh, immutable 100%, but will it always be? I mean, I'm certainly not equipped are, to answer this. There are quite a lot of Perfect. quantum blockchain uh, initiatives happening at the moment, um, which combine the two. Awesome. Um, I, I don't know anything about quantum blockchain initiatives, but I will say I was um, at this lunch after a rather technical blockchain finance talk, and this guy was telling a story about this woman who was a not well-known, just under the heading of how sometimes instrumental research comes from a, a kind of peripheral place. This woman was from a provincial university in a kind of totally other part of the world and figured out how to break the original hash. So right now it's the SHA-256, it used to be the SHA-1, and everyone's like, oh, this thing is airtight, it's great. And, um, and she figured out how to break it, and she went to present it at the conference, and it, it didn't work, so people were like, ah, she hasn't figured this out. And it turned out, she was, she was based in China, and it turned out that the textbook she had had not like reversed the left to right of like one piece of one, one key. And so she like got people in the middle of the night to fix it so she could present it at the conference, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, my bad, that doesn't work. And so I mean, I think it's like always possible. Someone mentioned the DAO earlier, and the, the way the DAO got hacked is that there's code that was line 749 that should have been line 747, and it allowed this recursive function where you could take money out, but it didn't report back that the money had been taken out, so you stick it out over and over again, and like, and that could happen to any of us. Like, when I'm not a blockchain programmer, but in theory, like that kind of human error is, well, we're going to have to leave it at that because we have run out of time. So thank you all so much. And with that, we conclude our two-part episode, bringing you an afternoon's worth of conversations on art and the blockchain. I'd like to thank all of the participants in this past May's event, as well as Even's fantastic partners. Thank you again to Greg Bresnitz and Ben Sisto from Ace Hotel, David Grin from Data Editions, Kevin McCoy from Monograph, and Sarah Brown from Tech NYC for collaborating on this event and its afterlife. 